0: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and we have in studio our film critic Richard Lawson. Hello. And joining on the line is our senior writer, Joanna Robinson.
1: Hi
2: Katie.
0: There's a lot to talk about. We're still dealing with the ongoing fallout of the Harvey Weinstein story. We'll have our Hollywood correspondent, Rebecca Keegan, joining shortly to talk about that. Then we have a couple of new movies to catch up with. And then we have Richard's interview with Elizabeth Marvel, who is the star of the Meyerowitz stories, which is both an awards contender and something everyone can watch right now because it's on Netflix.
1: Well, I would say she's a co-star, let's say. Yes, sorry. It's a large (laughs) ensemble
0: film. She is a star alongside a lot of other big names. But uh, we're looking forward to hearing that conversation. So now we're joined by Rebecca Keegan, our Hollywood correspondent who has uh, been following the Harvey Weinstein story like every other reporter in town. Rebecca, are you totally worn out from the last two weeks?
3: I am. This has been a relentless story and honestly, one of the more remarkable ones in the whatever 12 years or so that I've been covering Hollywood. I mean, it's just kind of insane, the number of women who've come forward and this sort of new shoe that drops every day.
0: Well, I mean, speaking of shoes dropping, it was Saturday where all of a sudden I looked at my Twitter feed and uh, something happened that I don't think I expected, which is that the Academy voted to expel Harvey Weinstein. And I I think we've said so many times in the last few years that the Academy is taking an unprecedented step, but this is truly something that had never happened before.
3: That's right. I mean, the only known example of the Academy Expelling a member for his behavior was a godfather to actor who loaned a screener to a neighbor who turned out to be a movie pirate. So (laughs) at the Academy, you know, this is the same Academy that that, uh, you know, gave a, a best director Oscar to Roman Polanski After he had served jail time in connection with uh, sexual assault of a 13-year-old girl, this is the same academy that counts Bill Cosby as a member. This is the same academy that has begged Woody Allen to join. He never does. Um, He's probably glad now. So it was remarkable both in its swiftness, this isn't a group that usually moves this fast, and just a, a huge break with tradition for the academy that normally doesn't look at its members' behavior.
1: It's probably too early to tell, but like, does this kind of thing feel like just swift PR maneuvering to sort of, you know, be in this sort of moral high ground or in the moral right, you know, or does this feel maybe like actual systematic change? I mean, obviously, we're only we're, we're still in the middle of this, so we, we don't really know. But but Rebecca, do you get any sense either way? Or is this just them scrambling to look good?
3: Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, one of the. Academy governors is Kathleen Kennedy, the president of Lucasfilm, who has also been calling for a commission in Hollywood to be created in conjunction with the, the guilds and with other organizations like the Academy that would provide a process whereby people could bring allegations um, to a body that would review them with the understanding that something would be done about it and that there wouldn't be career recriminations. So, you know, who knows if that's something that, that she can actually execute, but that suggests that at least on the part of that member of the Academy, and it's a big group with a a whole diversity of opinions, but on the part of Kathleen Kennedy, who's in a leadership role at the Academy, there is a sense that there needs to be some sort of meaningful change and not just a press release, uh, saying we've kicked the guy out. It's also, I think, you know, noteworthy that everybody else has kicked him out too. One interesting that, um, someone who used to work for Harvey Weinstein pointed out to me is that his, this has all come at a time when his company is really struggling and when he no longer has the power he once did. So one thing that's sort of interesting is that people did not come forward with this stuff, when Harvey Weinstein was at the top of his power. What I thought was so interesting in what the Academy said
0: on Saturday was that they kind of sidestepped the whole notion of like, well, this isn't the way things are done by them saying, yeah, this isn't how things have been done, but we're sending a message that it won't happen anymore. Like they seem to be trying to set a template for saying that like, like Richard was saying, like the old version of doing this isn't going to be the same. And that that seems really bold for them of like breaking with that level of tradition that they have.
3: It does. And I mean, I think that does reflect as we've covered uh, a lot, the way the Academy has changed in the last two years, it's increased its membership by some 20%. And many of those new members are look different from the previous members. they are more women, more people of color, more international members, a broad range of ages. So when we talk about the Academy now, we're talking about a different Academy than we were talking about when they gave Roman Polanski the Oscar. And and you know, obviously, sort of social rules are changing, too. And what people are are finding acceptable is changing. Well,
2: I was just curious if you if you thought that there would be then any sort of retroactive reckoning for someone like Bill Cosby? Do you see this as like the first domino of several about to fall? Or is this just this statement and the future, but we're not going to look
3: back? I mean, that's the million dollar question, I think is, does the academy now start looking at its members and looking at their behavior? You, you know, Woody Allen had that very provocative statement about not wanting there to be a witch hunt in Hollywood um, when he was interviewed by the BBC a couple of days ago. And I think that you there is a fear that there will be a quote-unquote witch hunt. There also is the knowledge that there are a lot of unsavory characters in the academy. There are a lot of people with Maybe things that they've done that aren't as egregious as what Harvey Weinstein is accused of or what Bill Cosby's been accused of. But that—that that is sort of the million dollar question. Yesterday, the academy president, John Bailey, issued this letter that seemed to suggest that would not be the case. But, you know, the board has 54 people on it. It's a lot of people. And I'm sure they each come to it with their own sort of set of experiences and and ideas of what should be done.
0: This might be an impossible question to answer at this point, because we keep saying the story is still ongoing, but there is an Oscar race going on right now. And there, until a week ago, the Weinstein Company had a horse in the race, and they've pulled the current war to some unnamed date. But, I mean, what is the sense of, like, how this is going to affect the award ceremony or the voters or all of these parties that are going on? It seems like such a weird atmosphere to be trying to conduct business as usual.
3: It does, and it feels, you know, there have been the usual award season events going on. It was this past Saturday at an, an event for Wonder Woman. Um, there are you know, the usual screenings happening at the Academy. And there is something about it that feels kind of odd. Um, the other thing that's interesting is a lot of the way people campaign today for Oscars was created by Harvey Weinstein. He, back in his Shakespearean love days, was the one who really accelerated buying for your consideration ads, hiring consultants, throwing lavish parties, starting whisper campaigns. None of this was really common practice until Harvey made it so in the 90s. And now as people are sort of looking at the whole arc of his career and his behavior and the way he's treated people, one thing that comes up is people sort of shaking their heads about about what Harvey started. It's interesting. Nobody seems to be wanting to back off from that campaign that he really created. But it is interesting that people are sort of looking at Oscar season with this eye uh, right now.
0: Yeah, no one wants to kill like a literal industry of like, for-your-consideration ads and parties. Like That's a not-insignificant part of the economy in, in Los Angeles.
3: It's true. And it's also a not-insignificant part, I think, of why Harvey Weinstein was covered the way he was. I mean, one of the interesting stories that's come out in the last 24 hours is I think it's a Huffington Post piece about uh, Peter Bart's relationship with Harvey Weinstein when he was running Variety and how central the Weinstein Company's advertising uh, buying was to that publication at that time. So as we're all sort of, those of us who cover Hollywood are sort of doing soul searching, like why didn't we break this story earlier? Why are we just finding this out now? There's this whole apparatus in among the people who cover hollywood that protected harvey including the fact that he was paying their salaries by buying these uh sort of exorbitant amounts of trade ads is that
0: where you think this story is headed next like kind of following the the breadcrumbs of of how this was allowed to go on for so long i mean there's also the other side of it where like roy price at amazon is out because of allegations against him like what are you looking for next as this follow-up continues
3: well, one, um, our new colleague, Nicole Sperling, and I had a story yesterday about the role the agencies may have played in in sort of covering up for Harvey Weinstein. And I've talked to so many, probably 20 or more agents in the last week or so about what they knew and, and how they felt they should handle it. I do think that there is going to be a lot of people looking at the agencies and and, and what they knew and what they did or didn't do. And how they handle these allegations going forward, you know, most of the agency heads held all hands meetings last week and issued kind of like sternly worded emails to their firms saying how you're supposed to handle this, that you're supposed to bring it to HR within the agency. You're supposed to bring in law enforcement if necessary. A lot of people are going to be watching if that if that uh, if people follow through on that.
0: Yeah, it seems like the first person who gets caught trying to cover something up like this, uh, is going to really pay for it. Like, that's not something you can get away with the way that you used to.
3: Yeah, I mean, that, you know, the interesting thing is, are there emails? Are there people within the agencies who want to talk, who tried to bring something up and were squelched? Um, That I think there are a lot of people who have a lot of questions about that. Speaking
1: of questions and sort of unknowns, I mean, obviously, the Weinstein Company is still a company. um, And they have titles that were meant to be released this year and next. Uh, and we know a little bit about, you know, what's going to happen with the current war, which was a big sort of Oscar hopeful for um, Benedict Cumberbatch uh, this year that didn't go over that well at Toronto. Um, and, and I've seen things written about that. But I'm curious, Rebecca, like what, what you know about the fate of any of these movies, but in particular, Mary Magdalene, which was a movie that was supposed to come out around Easter next year from the director of Lion with Rooney Mara and Joaquin Phoenix, you know, um, that seemed like it was going to be a big movie. And now seems it's not even clear if it's going to come out. Have you heard anything about that movie or any of these movies?
3: Gosh, I feel so bad for any filmmaker who has been unwittingly caught in this. Um, I don't know specifically what's going on with Mary Magdalene, but certainly, I mean, first of all, there there are disagreements on the board of the Weinstein Company now about what to do, about whether to sort of sell for parts, about what to whether to get a cash infusion and try and keep the company together. Bob Weinstein, who is at least for now uh, mostly running the company along with David Glasser, is seems to be very loyal to movies that he brought in under his Dimension label, and movies like Paddington Two, um, which are different from the kinds of uh, sort of prestige or more art house oriented movies that Harvey brought in. And it would seem to me that it's Bob's movies that are going to get priority going forward unless some of these filmmakers are able to get out of their deals with Weinstein, um, which the company may do, you know, in order to raise money, it may happily sell them to another distributor. And of course, there are many out there that are eager for content with all the with all the new players and places like Amazon and Netflix who would love to have a prestige title but for i mean for a filmmaker there was a time not that long ago when being bought by the weinstein company was just a a thrilling prospect and it meant that you were potentially on your way to oscar gold and now it could mean that you're in this horrible limbo state uh involving lawyers and um just sort of a lot of a lot of people who have interests beyond giving a good release to a film
1: And I suppose there is some precedent for this, you know, I'm trying to thinking about like MGM or relativity collapsing where in these, you know, and those were more sort of those were financial problems. They weren't, it wasn't because of a scandal like this, but like some movies just kind of fell through the cracks and either sat on a shelf for years and then finally got released or then just didn't at all. So, so I guess the fate of this, this kind of thing is really uncertain because there isn't that much precedent for
3: it. It's true. I mean, it's really, it's a horrible thing to have happen to a film because you lo- you have no control really over over where you end up. I mean, potentially, if you have a really strong producer involved with your movie, you can hustle around town and try and strike up some other deal. And you know, one interesting thing, um, I did a piece recently on Byron Allen, the one-time stand-up comic who is now uh, releasing two of, the, of this year's awards movies, Hostels and Chappaquiddick. He his first movie, 47 meters down, he bought from Bob Weinstein when Bob, when the Weinsteins were hurting for cash last summer. So, I mean, the Weinsteins have a history of of selling, of selling their, their, their movies when they need to sort of muster up some money. So it's possible some of these filmmakers could end up, um, in a better place. I mean, 47 meters down, which is, you know, there's genre shark movie um, ended up becoming one of the biggest movies of the summer because instead of being dumped to DVD by the Weinsteins, it was released by Byron Allen, who was trying to make a splash. So, it, I mean, there there are, there are can be a happy ending for a movie, but it's, it, I mean, the main thing is there's there's huge uncertainty for the people who financed it and made it.
0: Uh, Rebecca, I know we have to let you go, so we will, uh, but thank you for keeping on the story for us, and uh, hopefully next time we can have you on to talk about just anything lighter at all.
3: Yes, thank you. It was good talking with you guys (laughs) and on to lighter topics. So let's
0: move on and catch up with some of the films that have been debuting as festival season continues. It's still a really busy time, even though the main Hollywood story has still been way outside of all of this. Uh, The New York Film Festival last week was the premiere of Woody Allen's new movie, speaking of people who have their various own controversial stories. Richard, it sounds like Wonder Wheel is not necessarily going to be a contender and not really having anything to do with Woody Allen's weird track record. It's just maybe not that great a movie.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the movie screened last week at the, you know, New York was the last movie there. I think people sort of had some fatigue. But, you know, we, we all rallied and went to the morning screening uh, last Friday. And the response was mixed, I would say. You know, there were some people who really were into the movie. It's a, it's a 1950s set, kind of, it's almost like Tennessee Williams on Coney Island kind of thing, where Kate Winslet plays this sort of wilted hothouse flower who, you know, is living this boring life with a lug played by um, Jim Belushi and tries to escape her life with a younger man, played by Justin Timberlake. Uh, it has a lot of trappings of 50s, you know, th- um, like plays from the 1950s kind of melodrama, which I think is interesting, like as an approach to a movie. And Kate Winslet does give a big theatrical performance in it that at one point from a from a distance seemed like oh maybe she'll be an oscar contender but i think overall the response to the movie was tepid or eye-rolling enough i mean some people were really harsh on the movie um i filed a review that was sort of medium i would say so i don't know i think that it given what a crowded field it is among actresses and given that we still have a last Streep performance looming uh i'm not sure that winslet is gonna squeak it in this year
0: And do you get the feeling that after the week that we've all been having talking about, you know, various Hollywood figures who have abused their power, uh, that maybe no one wants to deal with Woody Allen right now? (laughs)
1: Oh, I, for sure, that was the sentiment going in. It was certainly the sentiment going out. It was the sentiment when Woody, you know, Woody Allen came out and spoke about Weinstein. You know, I think that, that the timing of it could not have been worse. Uh, and I will say, and this is no fault of, of necessarily the New York Film Festival or anybody, but like I went to the kind of the closing night um, party for the festival on set sa- last Saturday uh, at Tavern on the Green where the opening night party, which is a big raucous, you know, kind of kickoff to the fall season in New York, which is a great time. The closing night party was decidedly quieter, muted, you know, I think the mood had certainly shifted from two weeks ago. Um, and I, I don't know if that's entirely due to, to Weinstein, Woody Allen, whatever, but, but it definitely felt different. And uh, people just seemed less eager to be excited about anything.
2: I don't I don't know if this is like a sea change in public sentiment, or um, it's just that, you know, Woody's in a dry patch and he's he's, ha- you know, his career has ebbed and flowed sort of his whole his whole life. But it feels like at this point, he has to make a tremendous movie for it to break through this cloud of like reticence that anyone has to, like, keep any kind of praise on him, you know, so it has to be like a blue jasmine, which is tremendous, mostly because of Cate Blanchett. I mean, it's a good I'm you know, let's not change history. It's a good movie. Cate Blanchett is the reason that it's superlative, and something like Cafe Society last year cannot break through. And it feels like Wonder Wheel cannot break through. And and you know, you can decide listening at home whether that's the way it should be. But do you know what I mean? Like that's that's oh yeah. like the the bar is just so much higher for Woody to clear, and he's not doing his best work right now anyway. So. I'm also curious how this compares to Blue Jasmine, because when you talk about it
0: being kind of like Tennessee Williams in another location, that's exactly what Blue Jasmine was.
1: Yeah, Blue Jasmine was, I mean, although I I feel like during the press tour, like Alan kind of like denied this, but I mean, it is directly the plot. Of streetcar named desire, like it is, right. it is a streetcar named desire, and it was basically with, um, Blanchette doing that again after she'd done it to Raves with the Sydney um, Theater Company, and then toured that around the world. So it was kind of this reprisal of a role just in a different setting. This one is, I think, is definitely. I mean, I I could be wrong. I was a theater major, so I think that I would have a grasp on like mid-century theater. I don't think that there's a particular play he's referencing here, but um, but it has that feeling um, of a sort of. You know, uh, just not a kitchen sink drama exactly, but but that that kind of that does the 1950s style of um, a, a big, you know, grand performance that's sort of rooted in all this this sort of you know lower class social realism sort of thing. I will say about the movie though, despite it's, I think that Winslet maybe is not a contender, uh, nor is really anyone else in the movie. The the, the production design, the art direction, the cinematography um, is all spectacular and um i found myself really wishing that um the same in some ways the same Winslet performance and the same production design and cinematography could have all been in a movie that was not written or directed by woody allen so i don't think we should rule out the movie for in those categories i mean i heard some people already being like "Uh oh roger deakins who we thought finally was going to win for blade runner 2049 could be in trouble because of the cinematography in wonder wheel
0: well, on a totally different coast, uh, Joanna, you've been at uh, another film festival, the Mill Valley Film Festival, which uh, I think you you were telling me that. But it's one of the many fall festivals where you kind of start getting the people who are contenders kind of going around the circuit and trying to to make a case for themselves among a uh, a set of I think uh, you know a good handful of Academy voters. So, who were you seeing at Mill Valley? Who is uh, trying to stay in the race?
2: Yeah, I just, you know, I just looked it up and you can believe various articles or not. But according to a few articles I just scanned, the Bay Area is the third highest concentration of Academy voters. That makes sense, right? So yeah. it's LA, New York and San Francisco Bay Area, because we've got Pixar and Lucas up here and a lot of Los Angeles, people work in Los Angeles also live up here. So um the Mill Valley Film Festival... Is, you know, I think it's sort of like the Hamptons Film Festival in that it's like this it's set in this small location, but a lot of power players attend Um and they do these a few spotlight awards every year and they're cheating, of course, because the programmers have been to Toronto, they've like they've taken the pulse of what's going on. And so it's not like they're plucking these names out of the blue, but, you know, a few... You know, it happens in October. A few early people like Brie Larson for Room or Eddie Redmayne for The Theory of Everything or Jared Leto for Dallas Buyers Club. Like these are previous recipients who have gone gone on to win. So I consider it not not a bellwether or not <laughs> not <Oscars>. a bellwether. <laughs> um and so this year the the people that they they tapped you know and and as you say katie this is not just like who the mill valley film festival wants but also which talent is willing to come to the festival because they are on the campaign right well and you just name checked three people who famously campaigned
0: the heck out of their oscar seasons and um, were were rewarded for their efforts
2: so we have Margot Robbie. This year we have Margot Robbie, Andrew Garfield, and Greta Gerwig. And, um, I just wanted to hear from you guys. I mean, none of these seem like front runners to me in any category, uh, as much as I may like all of them. And I was just wondering what what you guys think of of these three act or these an actor director writer triple threat who are clearly I guess on the on the hunt. What so we're think? talking about Margot Robbie for Itanya,
0: Andrew Garfield right. for Breathe, and Greta Gerwig who wrote directed Lady Bird, right? Correct. Okay, Richard, what do you think?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that's interesting that Robbie's going to be there. I mean, I know that Itanya is. I don't remember if it's getting a qualified qualifying run or an actual full theatrical run this year. I think.
0: It's a full theatrical run, but I might be wrong.
1: Yeah, um, so that leads me to believe that yeah i mean obviously they knew out of toronto that 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 this move they were going to push that movie um but you know if they're if, if they're if they're, she's getting set up at f- festivals like that which you know as joanna said like has a good track record of you know being a sort of stopping point for for eventual winners um you know to get in front of a lot of um if not necessarily even academy voters necessarily but you know just people who are influential in in um in california sort of culture and industry um that that's interesting i also you know andrew garfield uh, is in a, you know, breathe, which is this very, you know, polite, lovely little biopic about, you know, an interesting guy and who had an interesting life. Um, it's not unlike Theory of Everything in a way, just the, this man was less famous than than Stephen Hawking. Um, you know, that movie didn't make much of a ripple at Toronto, but like Garfield has persisted. Anytime you talk to someone who's doing maybe a list of seven to eight Best Doctor contenders. So I'll be curious. I mean, that's that that side of things is less crowded than the actress side. Um, but yeah, maybe it is the smaller post-New York, post-Toronto festivals that really make the difference. I mean, the Hamptons, Mill Valley, uh, Middleburg in Virginia.
2: It it, it is like a very interesting festival because you have like, I don't know, the Mill Valley Film Festival started quite small, sort of expanded when we got a few better venues in the area. I grew up in Mill Valley. It's right across the bridge from San Francisco and um, expanded when we got a couple different venues and then really sort of skyrocketed into this whole like a lot of glitz and glamour associated with it and but but some of the uh trappings are still kind of small so you have things like Emma Stone sort of walking into a theater that has no stage and just sort of standing in front like last year for La La Land just sort of standing in front of the screen just being like hey guys <laughs> in, a, in a coat and like no makeup and just being like here's my movie bye like a ti- like not one of like not one of the big sundance venues a tiny sundance venue you know and just like here's Emma Stone with her Oscar-winning performance in La La Land. She just like shows up and walks out, and there you go. So it is a. It's such an odd festival. It, it attracts so many big names for for you know where it is. But I, I really like this idea of it being a good indicator of who is really going for it. You know, mm-hmm. and with 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 Greta Gerwig, I think that. You know, we, we were talking a bit before the show that I, I still haven't seen Lady Bird, but I am so high on Greta Gerwig generally. Um, but we talked about how she would be in direct competition with another one of our favorites, who's Jordan Peele. And it, it's very interesting to me that both of these who, who seem in some ways like outsiders, underdogs and their, and their films, not the conventional thing are, are in the mix, which might, are in the conversation at least, which, which might indicate, some of these questions we're asking about what the new Academy class is going to nominate this year. Um, But when, when you think about a Greta Gerwig and a Jordan Peele up against like a Christopher Nolan or Steven Spielberg, yeah, it's a little, it's a little daunting, but it, but it's interesting that we're even having that conversation, you know? Yeah. I'm feeling
0: really bullish on Greta Gerwig. And I think that, I mean, to talk about what the Harvey Weinstein allegations are going to say for the Oscar race is still kind of beside the point. But I do think there is going to be even more of a vibe of let's get rid of the old playbook. Let's not just nominate the movies that seem like they should be Oscar movies and do something new, uh, which is something that's been happening with the Academy already. Uh, But I think Lady Bird could really benefit from that.
1: Yeah, I I, I think that, um, you know, just given... So much goodwill for that movie, and the fact that you know that they're trotting Gerwig out, you know, and I think that Joanna talking about big celebrities entering a sort of like otherwise unassuming theater and just saying like, hey, like here it is, that indicates you, like you said, like a like and like Katie said, you know, a a, a willingness to really you know pound the pavement for this, and um, you know whether or not one one such appearance makes a difference, I don't know, but like obviously a sustained few months of this, and Lady Bird has a long kind of lead time right now. I don't see like the the tide turning on that movie. I think it's only going to kind of gain a momentum. I don't think there's going to be any, there's no backlash to be had there.
0: So now before we get to Richard's conversation with Elizabeth Marvel, let's talk about The Meyerowitz Stories, which is the new film from Noah Baumbach. It premiered at the New York Film, well, it premiered at Cannes, it was at the New York Film Festival, and it is now on Netflix for everyone in the world to see. I, of course, have not seen it yet because I, uh, dereliction of duty, uh, but Richard and Joanna, you guys have, uh, people are loving this movie, right?
2: I loved it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, and people generally, sorry, (laughs) like, I could say more than that. (laughs) Uh.
1: I just and picture you gazing out the window, just beside. I, this. I, I yeah. did actually.
2: I was just. I had my chin in my hand, and I was like, I loved it. I did. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm not a huge Adam Sandler fan, except and, and not even a huge Adam Sandler fan of his like more serious work, like I'm the only person in the world who doesn't like Punch Drunk Love, but um, you know, I, or the Cobbler. <laughs> but I had I had heard uh, such good things about this, and I do like Noah Baumbach so much. Um, you know that as soon as it hit, and I like sort of when. I get to, when I get to see things the same time as other people. So you know, when I hit Netflix, I got really excited. I know that that makes me like sort of, uh, I don't know, rooting for the death of the film industry. No, I am not. But it's nice that everyone gets to see the Meyerowitz cr- stories like relatively the same time. And um, yeah, I thought uh, Adam Sandler's amazing. Ben Stiller's amazing. Elizabeth Marvel's amazing. Dustin Hoffman is amazing. Uh, it's Emma Thompson's great you know I I listened to an interview with Noah Baumbach where he described it as vignettes so it's a it's a linear story but it's told you know he he plays around with the editing in such that you might just cut immediately away from something to jump forward in time and uh, it's it's not really concerned with pacing in a conventional way and uh, you know it's a very New York story and this is something I (laughs) something I tweeted out when I was watching it but you know like I was watching it And I was like, well, this is all the Woody Allen I need, really, is this is this movie. And um, I, you know, creatively, people like Noah Baumbach or Wes Anderson fill that sort of like ne- nebbishy gap in my life. You know, Baumbach has said multiple times that, you know, um, Squid and the Whale, one of his previous films, these, these films about sort of divorce and lonely childhood and growing up in New York are very autobiographical for him. And I feel like that really comes through. Uh, actually, even better in this film for me than it did in in Squid and the Whale, and yeah, I, I just I I was delighted by it, start to finish. So yes,
1: I would say I liked its parts more than I liked its whole, um, just because I feel like I have seen this before. Uh, maybe it's the Woody Allenness, maybe it's the previous Bondbeckness. I mean, this is essentially a, almost spiritual sequel to the Squid and the Whale. It's just. It's a different family configuration, and they're all older. But it's the same kind of frustrated artist, you know, um, father, uh, you know, and his and his children sort of struggling under that under that shadow. But yeah, I think that the performances are great. I, I like Adam Sandler in this mode. You know, I think it's the most sort of non fallback on his Dustin Hoffman ness acting that Dustin Hoffman has done in a while. And you know Ben Stiller, you know, with between this and Brad, status is having a good year at, at this kind of pointed comedy, kind of observational comedy. And 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 you know, as we'll talk to her, well, I'll talk to her later in the episode. But like Elizabeth Marvel, um, you know, this is a, you know she's been in movies before, but this is a nice, and she's not the biggest part in the movie, but like it's a nice showcase for her. I mean, she's you know she's standing toe to toe with um a lot of, uh, you know, arguably more famous actors. Uh, and I think that, you know, she more than holds her own. I, th- I hope that we get to see more of her uh, in the future. She, you know, she told me that, you know, this is, she and Bombac had been talking for a long time about working together. Um, so, yeah, but I also want to, you know, I think we should talk about whether this movie is potentially oscar because when it was at Cannes, ev- everyone was saying, oh, Adam Sandler, you know, Dustin Hoffman. And, um, and uh, you know, when I was t- again, I was talking to Joe Reed um, and he was saying that, you know, in a, in another year, like this is a this this Dustin Hoffman supporting like older venerable actor who everyone wants to re reward and you know you know kind of revive in a way like this is a this is a, a no brainer
2: about about Schmidt sort of moment <laughs>
1: exactly and yet you know uh, Netflix has Netflix has been very careful or the publicity team for Meyerowitz has been very careful. To stress that it is getting a 10-city theatrical release that, you know, to not discount it for anything in particular. But, you know, Netflix movies have not, you know, other than documentaries, as we've said many, many times on this podcast.
0: All right. What else should we know about the movie or Elizabeth Marvel before we get to your conversation?
1: Uh, Know that I was gushing to her. I don't remember if it's on mic or off about how you know when I first moved to New York. Like I, I you know I was I moved here to do theater and I was so I was reading as much about theater in New York as I could and I I remember she was described. This was probably around two thousand six as downtown theater queen uh, Elizabeth (laughs) Marvel and I was just immediately intrigued (laughs) that there could be a downtown theater queen as opposed to a Broadway theater queen. So or queen of downtown theater rather. Um, So. And I think that when I got my first raise, when I worked at Gawker, I did not tell her this. I got a raise at my job at Gawker. And uh, I to treat myself that night, I bought myself a ticket and it was to a play that she was in. Uh, so I've been a fan for about 11 years. Um, so it was exciting to meet her. And um, she's just really conversational, really just like a, a very e- instantly warm person. And we also got to talk a lot about her on Homeland, which where she placed the, the well, last season president-elect this coming season, the actual sitting president. And also we talked a little bit about, she was in the Julius Caesar, uh, in the park this summer, they got protested. She played Mark Antony in that, so oh. so we talked. We we, we we got a little political. So I think it's a it's a pretty you know full bodied conversation. Let's say. Really excited to be here with Elizabeth Marvel. Um, <laughs> this is sort of a, a, a funny, a weird story. But when I first moved to New York about eleven years ago, I moved here to do theater, and I was reading oh. something about. And I, re- I read something I think in the Times, and you were described as downtown theater queen Elizabeth. <laughs> uh
4: huh. And I have Me just and sort of Taylor uh, Mac, right? Exa- exactly, <laughs> a, a certified genius, Taylor Mac, Absolutely. as of today. Absolutely,
1: um, that's right. Yeah. He's official. Him and Annie Baker, yeah, really cool,
4: and rightfully so.
1: Yeah. So that's that's a way of saying that I've you know been a fan of yours for a long time, and oh, then sort of followed thanks. your career, and it's really exciting to see you now. Not entering exactly a new phase, but doing more things that maybe more people are going to see that isn't a theater Mm -hmm. piece that just, you know. So you have Meyerowitz Stories, a Noah Baumbach film that's coming out this month uh, on Netflix. How did you arrive at that? Like, Did you know Noah from the kind of New York world? I I did know Noah.
4: Not well. Mm -hmm. But um, yes, we had been around each other. I had been a fan of his, I think we had mutual admiration for each Mm -hmm. other's work over a long period of time and had been wanting to work together. We had briefly had a project that then kind of fell away due to a myriad of reasons. So I followed up saying, sending him an email just saying, you know, I really want to find a way to make something. And um, then he Met with me about Meyerwitz and yeah,
1: and there it is. We got to work, yeah. So, you guys just have like a sort of similar sensibility. Is that how you would describe it, or, or what What about you, you know each other? Do you well, think well, maybe
4: you know? our New Yorker nest, sure, you know, yeah, and a similar sensibility? I guess so, yes. I mean, his world is not foreign to me, it's not his upbringing is not my upbringing. And I'm not nearly as sophisticated or urbane as Noah
1: is. Few are, I feel like. Yes, yes, I
4: think that's true. Um, But I feel very at home in his world.
1: Yeah. Well, it's fun because, um, and we'll talk about other things you're doing like Homeland in a second, but this character, Jean, it's, it's you in a different mode. You're, you're, mm-hmm. you're, you know, like between House of Cards and Homeland, like you've, you've played very powerful people. Mm-hmm. And Jean has her own sort of, you know, centeredness and, and, but she almost serves this kind of meta function in the story, which is like she's kind of the the forgotten sibling in a way and so she has, but but then you know has these moments where she comes forward and and really sort of like speaks up for herself and mm-hmm. advocates was that an attraction at all to that role that it was it was a different mode than you've been in lately absolutely yeah. yeah
4: i was really excited when noah talked to me about it because as you say i tend to be asked to play on stage and on camera to play women of great power and strength and intensity Um, And Jean is a completely different animal. And, you know, it's instead of using, like, primary colored oil paint, it's much more of a watercolor on a much smaller scale. And that's a wonderful thing as an actor to be asked to do something that you don't know— uh, how to do it you're going to learn something new while doing it um so that was deeply satisfying
1: and and um now working with i mean there's it's a pretty star-studded cast in this film i mean <laughs> yes is, i mean you've been you've been you've been working long enough i mean does does that ever get to you or is there any any nerves about like oh my god is adam sandler or dustin hoffman or, or at this point you're kind of no yeah. i
4: wouldn't say nerves i think you know there are certain expectations that go with certain people Mm -hmm. and i was uh, i'm happy to report that it was an absolutely fantastic experience um they all of the the stars in the room were (laughs) were just they were awesome i mean adam is he is a beautiful actor Mm -hmm. and a really lovely lovely man and i had an excellent time and he worked so hard same with ben same with dustin everyone just showed up and worked and that's that's what interests me yeah. and that's what makes me happy and so we all were you know and everyone because noah is um such an artist and such a, a an incredible writer the script was was such uh, an amazing script and you just you don't get uh, 170 pages of dialogue anymore that just doesn't happen yeah. people don't write those scripts anymore and also the way he writes is so specific to each person. And the other thing that was so awesome working on it because he also gives you a lot of time to rehearse. We met a lot before we started filming anything and we had time to organically create a family over time, which you also that never happens in movies. And but the the way he writes, he's so smart that he writes this Language that is specific to this family. So we all share this same vocabulary. And if you're really attuned to the to the dialogue, you hear us saying the same words and the same phrases. and it's really amazing.
1: There's this, lovely thing that that this movie does uh, and i think a lot of his films do but because this has such a kind of sprawling family dynamic this 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 rambling talking over each other it's mm-hmm. very naturalistic mm-hmm. is that hard to get right is that where rehearsal comes in it, or it is yeah, and yeah. it
4: and it is i mean it's it's a, it's a great misunderstanding about a lot of noah's work that people assume it's very improv it's right. improvisatory and it's not at all it's it's extremely specific mm-hmm. and you feel it when you go off his language, you feel it because it's there's such a rhythm that's specific to his writing. and when you play it as he's written it, it plays itself like any good piece of of performative writing. It took uh, like the whole uh, dinner scene mm-hmm. with yeah. the shark. <laughs> Yeah. That took a good 3 days to wow. to do that and to because also the, the the thing that I find so interesting with it is is the sense of time. There is this organic clock that takes over in his work because he does give you the time but there's also an insistence on getting what he wants. So you do many takes. But never just, you know, random, it's always in very specific pursuit of something. And he he's very clear with the actors about what it is that we're trying to achieve. So it, it never is arbitrary or, you know, demanding or difficult. It's It's very purposeful. And so you want to do it. You're yeah. like a dog on a hunt. But because of that. This thing happens where there's no rush, there's no panic, there's no one pushing. Everyone can really sort of sit into who they are and breathe. And that's another thing that you rarely see.
1: It creates such texture yeah. that is essential to telling a credible story about a family. Right. Es- especially a family that I think is, you know, like Squid and the Whale was, sort of based on his, Baumbach's b- mm-hmm. own upbringing. Mm-hmm. Did you grow up in any sort of artistic household? Like where? Where did you I come? I did from? not. Yeah. I did
4: not. I grew up in. A, well, I, I should. My mother is a very creative person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I grew up in a little town in Pennsylvania in the woods. My father was a businessman, and um.
1: So you chose Taylor Swift, basically. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Exclusive revealing here today.
4: Yeah. <laughs> Oh, if only I was—that would be amazing. Um. So yeah, no, I, uh, I, I, uh, I can't explain who or why I am, what I am, but it, it, I do not
1: come from. So you don't have any of those hang-ups about a, you know, an, uh, an artist parent who then—that's nope. good. I mean, that's that's that's, that's nope. probably no. For the and best. my
4: father died when I was very young, so I don't have a dominant. Yeah. You know patriarchy hanging over my
1: head. Which, yeah, well, w- w- would that were true of the rest of the <laughs> world. Ugh.
4: That's
1: right. Um, I wanted to congratulate you. You were recently elected president of the United States. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Well, like, yeah, and, and now I it's think you're really going to be, hard. you're now, new, now in office, finally. That is correct. So, of course, we're talking about Homeland. Yes. Uh, I just um, finished the most recent season this weekend. We'll just say spoiler oh. alert for anyone listening, but there's <laughs> quite a creepy, dark twist there at the very end yes, with your character. Yes, one that i really didn't see coming mm. and did you see it coming was that talking um no yeah.
4: no you know home especially last season last season was super interesting because they cast me before the election and we started shooting before the election we were three episodes in when the election
1: happened so was the thinking do you think that it was they were imagining that clinton was going to win you
4: know i mean weren't we all but well, well. uh I I must say, when I went to read for it, there were men there as well, so it was not a gender specifically oh, written that's role. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so I think they were looking for the person and not the gender. Yeah. To my understanding, um, but and, and because Homeland does that amazing thing, which is it's not a docudrama of our times. It's in the sense of they're not trying to reenact right. what's playing out. They do something slightly alongside what's playing out um they do an alternate version of the world we're in so it's kind of awesome that way so they're not restricted or bound to events in the moment and yet they're always prescient about events in the moment yeah i mean fascinating
1: your your plot line which concerns a president-elect who is embroiled in the sort of fake news kind yeah, of situation. The bots and, and
4: absolutely. Uh,
1: but also, you know, there at the end again, spoiler alert, doubles down on executive power or mm. seems to be starting to. Mm. So when you're making this kind of I guess you could call it political television, you're now mm-hmm. shooting the next season of the show, is it helpful for you? Does it clarify anything about, about the our real world or comfort you or any? I mean, w- what is the relationship you have with, between this material and our very charged political? That's
4: an interesting question. Um, wow. I I have to say, I find it deeply satisfying at this moment to be playing a female president sure. and not to boil it down, not to be reductive and make it just about gender. But at this moment, it's kind of radical to make it just about gender, and I find it really powerful to be imaging a woman running the country.
1: So now, obviously, this is a great juicy role, and mm-hmm. it's a it's a well regarded show and a great cast. Um, so there, are, there, those are all the benefits. But like with doing these kind of long term television commitments, I mean. Do you enter into that with like hesitancy or h- how do you sort of strategize a career wise? Like I'll do a play or I'll do a movie or shows. Is-
4: um, I have no strategy.
1: No. Okay,
4: <laughs> I never have. I love long form television. Mm-hmm. I-, I love it. Uh, I love television. Um, I've always I, I deeply enjoy because I have a very fast creative metabolism and TV works well for that. Uh, I like to work fast. I have a lot of ideas. I like to try things out quickly and see what works and what doesn't. I'm willing to do anything. I will try anything. And TV's great. It's also a wonderful opportunity to live with a character over a long narrative. That's that's amazing. And you don't get to do that in theater or film in the same way.
1: Have you ever had a moment where you you know, a development happens later in a character's arc on a show and you're like, oh, if I'd known that, I would have played episode two differently. Oh my God, yes, yeah. yes, 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 yeah.
4: yes. Yes, but, but, and yet, as the actor, I've learned enough now to know, like, I don't, I, I'm one of those people that I don't watch a lot of what I make, but, you know, you there's a certain amount that you have to, because you have to go into ADR and correct sound sure. or you go to a screening or, so I there are, of course, I watch things. Um, and uh, often when I, I think like, oh, God, I blew that take. That take was so shitty. Or I don't know. Can I oh, say that? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Great. Um, or, uh, you know, or I think, oh, that was that was it. That was the one. And then I'll see it. And the thing that I thought was so shitty was actually quite nuanced and interesting. And the, oh. the things that I often think were like,
1: I nailed it, were
4: way over the top <laughs> and totally Totally off the mark. I so can,
1: writers can relate to that too. Yeah, I, yeah I'm sure. Yeah, I think yeah. all makers of things yeah. can
4: relate to that because we we just we don't know. It's and it's not our job to know. It's not really our business. Mm. It's especially with camera work. It's it's the editor's business and the director's business.
1: Yeah. Speaking of, uh, you know, I, I mentioned that you did theater and mm-hmm. politics. You obviously were involved in a particular theatrical production this summertime. I know this, where this is going. Um, I, I, I saw the show uh, before any of this had oh, happened. Oh, you did! Oh, yeah, cool. yeah, and I and I loved it. And oh, um, good. Uh, And talking about you know a, a, a sort of gender neutral casting, mm-hmm. I mean you played Mark. You played Mark Antony in mm-hmm. in Julius Caesar in the uh, Central Park. If people don't know what I'm talking about, uh, a, a production that was um, protested very, very, mm. very publicly um, yes. because of its depiction of a Trump esque figure being assassinated. Yes. What the hell was that like? I mean, oh was that God. scary? Was it? It was so fucking scary. Yeah.
4: <laughs> it was, it was, yeah. It was crazy, man. It was crazy. And surprising. And surprising. Was it? Yeah. Extremely surprised. Because basically, what went down is, you know, uh, we were making the play. Yeah. And one assumes that. The majority of people know the story of Julius fucking Caesar, one assumes, and basically the story says, if you kill the tyrant, democracy dies. So don't kill the tyrant. Yeah. That's really the moral of the story, right? Yes. And we all know that, right?
1: (laughs) Apparently we don't. Apparently
4: we don't all know that. Not if we don't
1: sit through more than one scene, Yeah. yeah.
4: Yeah. Right. Right. So we went into rehearsal, you know, as a company. And as you do, you rehearse scenes in blocks and you don't always see each other's work. And then one day we start putting them together and we go, oh, Calpurnia has a Slavic accent. (laughs) Interesting. Oh, Caesar is gesticulating. And, Mm -hmm. you know, okay, so that's what we're doing. So we weren't we didn't go. We weren't aware That unfolded as we were making it, and so then we were like, okay, this is what we're doing. Oscar, our director, had made some very clear choices, and that's great and totally valid. It's a totally valid choice to make. And then we... You know, went on and and I have to say, for me, it was very challenging because when he offered me Mark Antony, I was very clear that I I am interested in this time that we're in and of being a woman on stage. I think it's time for me to play the kings. I think it's time for m- me to play Richard the Third, and and not just me. I mean the the larger you sure know, the the we, but but yes, specifically me <laughs> as well, yeah. and and not. Not in, in, in a way that I'm trying to be a dude, not by lowering my voice or having, with all due respect, or having to be a woman in a woman's prison to play these parts, but right. to just be me playing Mark Antony. And I, I, because I'm interested in the territory of the heart of the human, not in their gender. Right, Um, and I think it's time to go deeper beyond gender, and so that was what I was in pursuit of while making Mark Antony, and so it was challenging at first because of this Trumpian thing that was happening of like, well, I'm not going to imitate Kellyanne Conway, you know, I'm not going to do Sarah Palin, so what do I? And then it was. So I, I I really wrestled. I went to the map for a while. And then my husband, who's an amazing actor, and he was listening to the podcast Shit Town. Mm, and oh, he yeah. said, oh, you know, th- you should listen to this. This might help you. And it totally unlocked the magical door. And then I, it all came clear to me. And I was able to begin to make this this thing. And then so now... Flash forward to we're a few weeks into performance. And apparently I don't do social media, so I was blissfully ignorant uh-huh. of the shitstorm going on. But apparently uh Donald Trump Jr. saw footage that someone had filmed of the assassination scene and uh started tweeting about it. And then Breitbart News got a hold of it apparently and started offering a thousand dollars to anyone that could get on stage and stop the play. And then apparently it was a whole yeah. Michigas. Yeah. But again, I, I don't tune in, so I was tuned out. But um, there was suddenly a security force at the theater and we were being escorted by security guards and uh my friends who were in the social media world were saying that we were all receiving really quite disturbing death threats on a regular basis. And, and we would be performing and people would come flying out of the audience screaming at us that we were Nazis and should be killed and try to tackle
3: yes. us. Yeah. And
4: security people would then tackle them. And it's a very weird experience being on stage doing a Shakespeare performance and see someone coming at you screaming. How, I
1: mean, I get, I, you know, it might be a pretentious question, but like, at what what is the limit there, you know, in terms of like feeling secure and like, okay, it's just a play. It's not worth doing if I'm feeling, you know, but also you want to stick to it to kind of maintain that principle. I mean, thank God you didn't have to make that decision this mm-hmm. this time, but like, can you see a, a time when you would be so daunted by something that you would just say, okay, we have to stop doing this or
4: it's a good question. Um, I think at this moment in time, that's something we all really need to ask ourselves in many different ways. You know, yeah. what are we willing to stand up for and what are we willing to, um, put ourselves on the line for. And, uh, because I think if we're not already, then we better get ready to, because, shit's coming down mm-hmm. you know yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. getting to be really intense out there yeah and so yeah in 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 our art um as artists um i i think uh it, it was a reason why i mean it it would have been very easy for someone in that audience of 2000 to have a weapon um oh yeah and the fact that they didn't we just got lucky there's just not. But I mean,
1: there's not the security apparatus at the theater. There, isn't. Yeah. there isn't.
4: Yeah. there isn't, and there wasn't. Yeah, um, and we collectively made a decision every night, like we collectively will do this together. And so, it was definitely in our consciousness that that something could happen, and yeah. we made the decision to do this. It was, you know, our protest.
1: And 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 I think it, it did. I mean, you know, the 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 when when people were so upset and saying, oh, they're advocating killing Trump because because they don't understand the play or they don't know the mm-hmm. play. Mm-hmm. For me watching it it felt like it it wasn't that scene is not cathartic in any way. It not was terrifying it's and horrible. Br- brutal. And it it for, for me it seemed like a, a sort of plea in a way to the sort of the liberal New Yorkers who were going Absolutely. to see theater yep. like let's all kind of temper this and, and sort of think put, about yeah. where this right.
4: sentence ends. Right.
1: Right. Exactly, which is why it was so Frustrating and
4: heartbreaking. Yeah, it was heartbreaking. Yeah, but yet all the more reason why we need to continue to tell the story, yeah. and have the conversation, and do the work. We can't stop doing the work.
1: Yeah, no, that's true. Um, well, let's end on a lighter note <laughs> um, because that's heavy. But although very good to hear. But um, so you know, I, I think about you in smaller parts, like um, it's terrifying in the Born Legacy where you try to kill Rachel Vice. <laughs> yeah. That was that was that. That's a that's a couple of scenes I will always remember. I, so funny on Thirty Rock. Um, do you have one of those kind of one-offy smaller things that, that you sort of hold dearest, or are they all kind of?
4: Oh my goodness! Let me. Th- oh. Oh. you know, you know a part that I really loved, which it wasn't a one-off, but it was sort of like I I lived on the fringes was uh, the beautician that I played on the second season of Fargo. Oh, um, yes. I really loved her. God, that's right. And she was such a, a kook and such a fun creation. And I just sort of was able to pop in and out. Because, I mean, the, the, the funny thing about me is, um, which I'm very grateful for, is that I get to play all kinds of people. Yeah. But I'm very funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so when uh, when I get to do more absurd, you know, lighter fare, I, I really... Love it, because I've done a lot of very... Dark exploration and heavy lifting for right. a long time.
1: Well, this, this coming season of Homeland turns into a comedy, right? Exactly. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, don't yeah, sorry. spoiler. Sorry. Yeah, again, come spoiler on now. Yeah. Um, so is that like if you if if someone said okay, what would your ideal project be next? Would it be something in the comedy realm, or is there anything else you want yes, to tackle?
4: I would very much like that. Yeah. Um, I I have an eleven year old son, so I would very much like to be involved in anything with superheroes.
1: Oh, okay. All right. Well, <laughs> Hollywood.
4: If you're Marvel, listening. yeah, Marvel. I've already you know, got the I, last I, I, name. I people t-
1: again when watching Homeland <laughs> on this weekend, I did tweet out um, Elizabeth Marvel Cinematic Universe, like, <laughs> which and someone a couple people responded. They were like, "Sign me up, we want it." So, so we can't Excellent. wait to see what what comes next. Um, oh. Elizabeth, this was great. Thank you for Thank uh, c- you. coming by.
4: My pleasure.
0: That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you as always for listening. You can find us and rate us and subscribe and all that other stuff at Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can find us all at vanityfair.com. We're all on Twitter at LittleGoldMen Men and on our own. I am at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y, R-I C H, and Richard. Rylaws. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Mike is off on vacation. He is at Mike underscore Hogan and he'll be back with us, hopefully. Ciao next
1: week. Mike. <laughs> <laughs>
0: This episode was edited and produced by Jordan Bell and thanks to Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for the best response of the haters goes to Elizabeth Marvel.
4: One assumes that the majority of people know the story of Julius
1: fucking Caesar. <laughs>